daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, the 43rd ASEAN Summit opens in Jakarta. What key issues will dominate the discussions? Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin have met in Sochi. Can the Black Sea grain deal be restored? And Japan tells the WTO that China's seafood ban over Fukushima water is unacceptable, while China says its move is fully legitimate. The 43rd Association of Southeast Asian Nations Summit has opened in Jakarta, Indonesia. The event brings together leaders from ASEAN member states and its dialogue partners. The summit and related meetings will focus on ASEAN's unity and inclusiveness. Chinese Premier Li Qiang is attending the summit and is paying an official visit to Indonesia, the current ASEAN chair. For more, we are now joined on the line by Professor Sun Qingren from the School of Asian Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Professor Sun, thanks for joining us. Yeah, hello. Um, so what are the key expectations and agenda priorities for the ASEAN summit and what pressing issues are likely to be at the forefront of discussions? Uh, I think this ASEAN summit continues to uh, focus on the same center around ASEAN. Uh, for example, it will focus on the creating a peaceful and stable regional environment uh, deepening cooperation with Western ASEAN and also with uh, our partners and also promoting common development in this region. Uh, this ASEAN summit and related meetings will also focus on um, several key areas, uh, including laying the foundation for ASEAN's long-term uh, vision, making ASEAN more resilient to challenges, uh, making ASEAN a center of regional economic growth, and also building the region into a peaceful and a prosperous uh, region. Mm-hmm. Well, Chinese Premier Li Qiang is attending the summit and paying an official visit to Indonesia. So how, what can we expect from his engagements with ASEAN leaders and other world leaders participating in the, uh, in the event? Uh, I think uh, the leaders of China and ASEAN will hold a friendly meeting this time, uh, which will certainly uh, deepen the building of China ASEAN community with a shared future, uh, help the China ASEAN FTA uh, 3.0 negotiations, promote the docking and cooperation between China's DRI and ASEAN outlook on the uh, Indo Pacific and uh, upgrade uh, bilateral cooperation in specific areas such as addressing development challenges uh, for security, green economy cooperation, and blue economy cooperation, uh, digital economy cooperation and five generations uh, techniques, new energy, connectivity. And uh, uh, I think uh, this meeting will uh, open a, a new ho- a hopeful chapter for foreign cooperation between both sides and building a closer China-ASEAN community with a shared future. Okay, so how would you describe the current state of relationship between China and ASEAN countries? Mm. Uh, I, will talk to, I will talk more about this point. Uh, China has always always regarded ASEAN as a priority in neighborhood diplomacy and a key area, key area for high-quality joint building of the BRI. And also ASEAN 
and also, also regards China as an important partner. Uh, at the political level, the interaction between China and ASEAN leaders is as close as relative in the past years. Uh, China continues to support ASEAN's uh, central position in the uh, regional cooperation. And uh, the relationship between the two sides has become one of the most dynamic, uh, meaningful, and mutually beneficial relations uh, in ASEAN's dialogue partnership. And also at the special summit uh, uh, commemorates the 30th anniversary of the Chi- ASEAN-China dialogue relations in November uh, 2021. Both sides uh, established, uh, uh, agreed to establish a meaningful, substantive, and mutual beneficial, comprehensive uh, strategic partnership. And also, also in the economic uh, area, and China has signed bilateral cooperation documents with 10 ASEAN member countries to just build the Belt and Road. Uh, China-ASEAN cooperation has a strong momentum to overcome the impact of the global economic downturn and grow against the trend. In terms of trade, the status of both sides as the largest trade partner has been consolidated in the past three years. And China has been ASEAN's largest trade partner for 14 uh, consecutive years, and ASEAN has been China's largest trading partner for the three consecutive years. Uh, in 2022, the trade volume between the two sides reached uh, uh, 975.3 billion dollars, an increase of uh, 11.2% uh, 11. year on year, which is 2.2 times that of to uh, 400, uh, 443.6 billion dollars in uh, 2013. And also in terms, uh, in terms of investments as of July this year, the cumulative two-way investments between China and ASEAN countries exceeded uh, 380 billion US dollars. Uh, and also the fruitful results of connectivity cooperation between two sides have boosted the development of both sides and they depend regional cooperation. Uh, and also, uh, China and ASEAN have similar cultures, close cultural ties, and numerous achievements in cultural exchanges, which uh, has promoted uh, mutual understanding among uh, the people from two sides. Yes, but what about um, their differences or disputes regarding the South China Sea? How do you think China and um, the ASEAN countries can navigate the remaining differences effectively and maintain regional peace? Mm. Uh, this is a very complicated, uh, complicated uh, uh, issue. But uh, actually, the South China Sea now is currently one of the cities, the cities and the most open waters in the world for navigation. We know that the second reading of the Code of Conduct in the South China Sea uh, text has been, complete, uh, has been completed. Uh, China pledges to work together with the relevant countries to promote the COC to become an effective, uh, substantive, and lawful regional rule to better safeguard peace and stability in the South China Sea and effectively guarantee the lawful rights and interests of countries outside the region. Well, as you said, uh, the COC negotiations are ongoing, but how do you see the role of um, regional or global powers in facilitating or potentially hindering the resolution of the South China Sea dispute? Uh, 
yeah. Uh, I think we hope that uh, countries outside the region uh, should respect the efforts made by uh, China and ASEAN and play a positive role in maintaining uh, regional stability instead of the, uh, the opposite. Now, uh, we, we know that uh, China and ASEAN do not need uh, condescending structures, but have, we have full confidence, uh, wisdom, and capacity to properly resolve the South China Sea dispute through efforts and peaceful means. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, as we know, U.S. Vice President um, Kamala Harris is also attending the meeting. So what do you believe are the top priorities on her agenda and how is uh, the role of the U.S. evolving in relation to ASEAN? Yeah, uh, I, I guess uh, on her uh, agenda, there may be some top priorities. Uh, for example, the U.S. will increase its efforts to attract uh, ASEAN and uh, to make the bilateral relations to be closer uh, than before. And also the U.S. wants to persuade ASEAN to participate more in the so-called Indo-Pacific strategy of the U.S. At the same time, the U.S. Uh, maybe will also hope to strengthen economic cooperation with ASEAN uh, and to make the two sides uh, economic cooperation to be closer than before. Uh, and also twice the two sides may, uh, may discuss some hot topics in the region, such as uh, regional uh, security and uh, 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 regional economic development uh, and uh, also regional economic cooperation and integration. Well, what, what challenges do ASEAN countries face in navigating the escalating rivalry between the U.S. and China? Uh, ASEAN has uh, repeatedly emphasized that it pursues a neutral foreign policy and does not want to choose sides between the U.S. and China. However, uh, now uh, we notice that China, uh, uh, ASEAN does face pressure from the United States in developing cooperative relations with China. Uh, when ASEAN conducts some cooperation with the United States and China, it faces a relatively uh, awkward situation now, uh, which has also had some uh, impact on uh, ASEAN's diplomacy and development. Well, uh, the United States has also been expanding its military presence and engagements in the region as part of its Indo-Pacific strategy. So how is this being perceived by ASEAN countries and what impact might it have on regional security and stability? Uh, ASEAN now is increasingly, increasingly concerned about the gradual uh, tension in the regional security situation. Uh, uh, I think uh, ASEAN is also very clear that uh, the region needs security. Uh, only by maintaining long-term security in this region can we ensure the economic and the social development of the region and ensure that the people of this region live a good life. Therefore, ASEAN has repeatedly called for relevant countries to jointly uh, maintain regional security and development. Mm-hmm. Well, the summit will focus on ASEAN's unity and inclusiveness. So how do you perceive um, the significance of these principles in the context of ASEAN's regional and global engagement? Or what challenges might they face in seeking unity and inclusiveness? Yeah, uh, ASEAN, uh, ASEAN is, a, uh, the, is a very important organization in East Asia. 
and uh, Asia Pacific region. Uh, I think uh, ASEAN integration uh, can achieve tremendous results today, and ASEAN led, uh, uh, is leading East Asia cooperation. Uh, it can achieve tremendous results today. One of the reasons uh, is that, uh, and also one of the reason, reasons why ASEAN's global position is so high today is that it maintains unity within ASEAN as much as possible, as long as possible in the past uh, more than 50 years. Uh, the regional cooperation advocated by ASEAN also has a great inclusiveness. So it attracts uh, many uh, countries around the world, such as uh, uh, China, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, US, uh, India, and also some organizations such as the EU to join in uh, ASEAN, ASEAN-led regional cooperation. And also we noticed that uh, uh, also during this, uh, this phase, uh, ASEAN will hold the East Asia Summit and also other related uh, summits uh, in Indonesia. This also shows that uh, ASEAN's unity and inclusiveness has uh, great attractiveness for both for regional countries and also the countries uh, around the world. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Professor Sun Qingren from the School of Asian Studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says the Black Sea grain deal may soon be revived after a meeting with his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin. Putin says Russia will return to the deal if its demands are met. Dasha Chernyshova has more. At the start of the talks with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Sochi, Russian President Vladimir Putin said the two leaders have raised relations between Moscow and Ankara to, quote, a very good high level. The talks lasted several hours, touching upon various issues from energy cooperation, with Russia hoping to finalize talks on the gas hub creation in Turkey to Syria and Ukraine. Putin repeated that Moscow was ready to return to the Black Sea grain deal once its demands are met. He accused Ukraine of using the corridor to carry out attacks against Russia, and the West of using the deal not to the benefit of the biggest countries. In the meantime, Russia's Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, said Moscow would continue to destroy Ukrainian infrastructure involved in the production of the unmanned boats that is located in three ports, Chernomorsky, Yuzhny, and in Odessa. Sergei Shoigu said those naval drones are among the reasons why Russia did not extend the Black Sea grain deal. Turkish president said he was hopeful to find a solution to revive the arrangement, adding that Ukraine must soften its approaches. That is Dasha Chernyshova reporting. And for more, we are now joined on the line by Kamal Makili Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Raval Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so how do you look at the outcomes of the Putin-Erdogan meeting? And do you observe any notable advancements, especially concerning the Black Sea grain deal? Well, first of all, the sides have uh, engaged in the dialogue to uh, sort of sort of uh, check the temperature on the relationship, on the bilateral relationship between Turkey and Russia. They have went over a number of um, 
uh, important issues in the bilateral relationship and their cooperation. I'm pretty sure that the security in the Black Sea area have been discussed and maybe not made uh, public uh, on the details of the discussions, but of course uh, that also includes the war between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Um, also, there's been a talk about the uh, continuation of cooperation in the energy fields because of uh, gas exports of Russia and, of course, uh, the atomic energy, the nuclear energy deals uh, and uh, the building of the, uh, the finishing up uh, the projects on the Akaya uh, nuclear station in Turkey and then a possibility of building a second nuclear station, uh, power station in Turkey, uh, thus cementing those uh, energy ties between Turkey and Russia. <clears throat> when it comes to the question of the uh, grain deal in the Black Sea, um, unfortunately, there haven't been any kind of uh, development reached uh, in the talks between Erdogan and Putin um, when it comes to uh, any kind of restoration of the deal or uh, any kind of development in the negotiations uh, to have a starting point of creating a second deal or re reviving the previous. We haven't seen uh, any kind of um, uh, any kind of that kind any kind of developments uh, spoken of uh, in the press conference by the parties that have been negotiating, or in the experts' views uh, based on those negotiations. Mm -hmm. Well, re remind us a little bit on uh, why it led to Russia's decision to exit the Grain Deal back in July. So, uh, f f first and foremost, Russia was not. Uh, satisfied of how the deal was implemented. Uh, it felt that the Ukraine got all the, the benefits of a grain deal, while Russia had been lagging behind uh, in the deal, and the areas where, where Russia's concern was most important were not satisfied. So it's, it's at, at some point said that it's going to pull out uh, or exit the grain deal and uh, consider the, the previous uh, structure of the deal as moot. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how? I mean, why does Russia's demand for for the resumption of uh, Ukraine's Black Sea exports, and how realistic are these demands in the eyes of Western countries? Uh, first and foremost, <clears throat> Russia asks for the removal of any kind of obstacles to export food and fertilizers. So any kind of food products and fertilizers that Russia produces and wants to uh, to export, uh, it should be unrestricted. And it's also said that the restrictions on shipping and insurance have been hampering its agricultural trade. And uh, Russia wants that removed as well. Um, and uh, that is despite the shipping records uh, of wheat that the Russia um, have acquired the previous year. I'm I'm not sure <clears throat> uh, on the realism of this kind of issues. You know, from the Western side, I think it's 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 best that it's addressed to um, to officials uh, of the Western countries uh, engaged in the sanctioning of Russia. But it is the the content of the sanctions that have been adopted by the European Union and US mainly, as well as other actors um, uh, that uh, create the obstacles for Russian exports, any kind of exports, including the ones that deal with the food and agricultural produce. Okay. Uh, and, and that is going to be problemat problematic because the restrictions are already in place and taking them off is also conditional upon the war of Ukraine. Yeah. 
Yeah. So help us understand the significance of this grand deal, not only for Ukraine and Russia, but also for countries rely on these exports in Africa, in the Middle East and in Asia. Russia and Ukraine uh, together have um, dominated the market of the grain uh, around the world uh, to a very significant part, um, to the extent that uh, the cheap uh, exports of wheat, uh, especially, are crucial uh, for the uh, African uh, continent, many countries in the African continent, in the Middle East, and into many Asian countries. That is because this the cheap source of wheat allows them to uh, ensure their own food security, ensure that in the times where their own uh, grain uh, grain reserves or, uh, for example, if there is a drought, that they have an access uh, to wheat that can be converted into uh, bread and other produce uh, that is able to feed their people. And without that, this creates uh, a very difficult conditions, especially uh, in Eastern Africa, where the droughts uh, are very uh, frequent. They can uh, seriously, but it's also in Asian countries as well, in the Middle East, this, this is also true, but Africa is such, uh, Eastern Africa is such a great, uh, uh, well, not, not great, but uh, a very illustrative example where uh, one drought can affect millions of people and lead to famine and starvation on the uh, very large scale. Uh, for Middle East and Asian countries, this also creates the difficulties and sometimes can create on the smaller scale uh, famines, but also uh, hamper the development of uh, countries in those regions. So it is very important that the grain and wheat especially would flow freely from Ukraine and Russia to the markets. Mm-hmm. Well, Putin actually mentioned that uh, Russia is going to provide free grain to several African countries. So is that going to help? Uh, I don't think it's going to help a lot. It is a very good uh, public relations move, so to say, and saying that Russia is going to provide this for free. But the amounts that Russia are going to pro- be providing for free are not going to, to make a resolution to the problem, right? Because we are talking about quantities mm-hmm. that Russia is not able to gift and which uh, also uh, consist of a lot of Russian exports. And this is, is going to hurt Russia if Russia uh, uh, go, is going to just gift a significant amount of it. So this amounts are not going to be significant. It might help a little bit to the, to the populations if it reaches the most uh, needy populations, the populations that are most in need of that. Uh, and in the short term can alleviate a little bit of suffering. But it's not going to, to make a resolution of a problem uh, we need to get back to the situation where the, the uh, wheat is able to fl- uh, flow freely to the markets uh, and keep the markets operating. Mm, okay, very quickly, how do you look at Turkey's role as a broker in these negotiations, and how does its, I mean, its, its role as a, a NATO membership influence its um, role as a mediator? Turkey has a unique position in the sense, as you, as you stress, that you have a Turkey, the NATO member. Um, and basically, we have Russia that is a distrustful of everything NATO uh, in, in this kind of a sense um, of, uh, uh, you know, uh, strategic rivalry. But Turkey, on the other hand, has a very close economic and political ties to Russia and have maintained them, not as close as many other uh, allies uh, or countries neighboring Russia. But Turkey, from the 
NATO uh, members is the closest uh, uh, country in bilateral relationship and has established uh, a certain uh, areas where the, the trust is mutual between Russia and Turkey. So that's why it takes this kind of unique position uh, of a mediator. Plus the leadership ties, uh, Erdogan and Putin seem to be uh, on a very friendly basis and have been uh, spotted into to this kind of spotted mm -hmm. by the observers and experts um, yes. in their relationship as, as, as a, a very uh, close one. Yes, unfortunately, we are running out of time. So thank you, Kamal Makili Aliyev. Let's take a very short break. Coming back, we'll continue our discussion. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. An Israeli scholar is praising the advancement of China's robotics industry at this year's Siftis. Professor Zvi Schiller, chair of the Israeli Robotics Association, says he was impressed with how China's robotics industry has developed over the past decade. He says integrating robotics into manufacturing process could help enhance efficiency, reduce costs, and increase productivity. In an interview with the reporter Xia Wen, Schiller notes that Israel is known for its innovation capacity, and with China's manufacturing power and market potential, he expects China-Israel cooperation in the robotics industry to be a win-win plus. Let's take a listen. Professor Schiller, you participate in a virtual CIFTIS forum this year focused on innovation and development in digital trade. Could you please share some key points from your speech at the meeting? Yeah, this was actually, it was a short introductory uh, greetings uh, address to the conference. At that time, I actually said that uh, digital trade is actually a significant part of digital economy. When you trade, you do it digitally, the economy is actually all involved. When you talk about the physical aspects of the digital trade, so you, you bring in robotics. And it comes in manufacturing, in trading, in delivery, services, it's part of the subject of the conference, like healthcare and telemedicine, surgical robotics, rehabilitation. So basically in trading, a big part of trading is not only transferring money, but transferring goods. Mm -hmm. And when you transfer goods, you have to make the goods that comes into robotics. Mm -hmm. Robotics is becoming a big part of that. Indeed. I know you are uh, currently working on a few projects. In the future, your goal is to make those research become reality, especially in a consumer robots. Could you share with us more about that? You are perfectly right. Uh, robotics is a wide field. So you have robotics everywhere, manufacturing at home, in the hospital, helping uh, needy people, people who, who have some, uh, some difficulties or handicapped. So robotics is actually everywhere. Not yet, but it will be in the future. Now, I think that of all of those uh, applications, the service robots, those that come close to the person, not those that stay in the manufacturing and make goods, but those who interact with the people, this will become probably the major market for robotics in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's where I personally am most interested in. And with my students, that's where I'm pushing them into. So I'm pushing them into developing products or developing ideas, solving basically problems, where individual people, usually weak segments of society, they need somebody to assist them, and that somebody may not be there in the future. And when you look around, you see plenty of such applications, from standing up from a chair, 
standing up from a bed where you cannot do it by yourself, even sitting on the toilet set. So you enter the toilet area and you want to sit on the toilet, you may want to do it with a robot and not with a person who sees you in a very intimate moment. So I do strongly believe that these personal robots and service robots are going to take a major part of the market. And this is what I personally am most interested in because they will impact us personally, not just what they will do in the industry, it will impact us on a daily basis. We know Israel is renowned for its high-tech industry, and China's technology sector has seen significant improvements in recent years. So as an expert in the field with nearly a decade of working experience in China, what's your assessment of the robotics industry in our two countries? I mean, how can Israel and China enhance cooperation to complement each other and achieve greater results? It's a very good question. This is something I've been I've been doing or engaged in in the last 10 years, more accurately since 2015, when we were actually invited to China to start cooperation between Israel and industrial park in Guangzhou. So Guangzhou decided to cooperate in robotics, developing industrial park. It didn't work out as the way we planned, but we became aware of the big move of China into automation and robotics. I just recently visited the the World Robot Conference 2023 in Beijing. I was amazed by the difference from what I remember seeing, say, about eight years ago. And now in China, with the very strong help of the government, they decided to actually get into robotics and become a leader in this. So they put a lot of money, not only in industry, but also in other fields. And I really became very impressed with the way the Chinese robotics industry has gone over the last decade. Now, Israel is also not sitting still, also is moving into robotics. We are much smaller. We don't have the resources that other countries may have, but we have two things that are quite unique. We, first of all, are very innovative. Many others are innovative too, but we somehow developed an entrepreneurial culture So Israelis, when they get into the industry, they become very successful in creating new companies. But our market is very small. We never make robots for the local market. We always make them for the global markets. And when you develop something in Israel and you are looking for the local markets, um, if we look, it's for us, it's to the east. If you look to the east and you see China, you see a huge market that hasn't been tapped yet with, say, consumer robotics. We are actually not going probably to contribute much to industrial robotics, but in the service robot area, we are quite uh, quite advanced. And I believe that this is something that we can do together with China, not only for the local market in China, but also for the global market. Mm. Regarding cooperation between China, Israel, China and Israel, I think that this should be a win-win plus relationship. We learn from China, China learns from us, and at the end, this becomes a a win-win plus relationship. Mm. So China learns from us, we learn from China and benefit from each other. You just mentioned about the market. Actually, China expects its robotic market to grow by over 7% in the next five years, reaching a market volume of $9 billion in 2028. So how can robotics industry boost China's economy, particularly in high-tech sector? 
uh, it can do it in, in several ways. First of all, 7% growth in several years, I believe that the growth will be much higher. In some numbers, I saw that the current growth is at the rate of 13% a year. And uh, I made my own calculations and I saw some other calculations saying that the world robot market may reach in not too many years, something like $400 billion. And I believe that local Chinese market will be bigger than what you predict right now. But the, the, these are speculations. I, I cannot, I cannot vouch for that. Now, the way the way robotics can affect uh, China is in several ways. First of all, it does improve its manufacturing capabilities, and uh, it's no no doubt that China became the manufacturing hub for the world. Now, recently, with the global uh, geopolitical problems, things are kind of uh, slowing down. But that's what was true at least five years ago. So China is a great manufacturer. And if you bring robotics, you're manufacturing cheaper, better, and, and in, in more, more quantities. That's one way. Another way is that actually the, the robotics itself, it, it makes the local industry sort of high-tech. So it's more sophisticated than if you work just by hand. Mm. Another part of that is that the way I see it, is China is actually entering, moving from industrial robots to other type of robots like the service robots we, we just mentioned. Mm -hmm. For example, in the last exhibition, I was very surprised to see quite a few medical robots. And some of them are solving the problem slightly different, maybe even better, that's what the, the, the developers claim, than the American or the current global robots that are made in the United States, for example. Mm -hmm. So China is moving into the field of robotics that it hasn't been there before. And if it succeeds, it may become the source for this kind of robots worldwide. That's Professor Zvi Schiller, chair of the Israeli Robotics Association, speaking with our reporter Xiaowen. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today, I'm Zhao Yang. Tesla has shown its restyled Model 3 sedan for the first time to the public at the China International Fair for Trading Services in Beijing. The new basic edition of the Model 3 has a longer driving range and will be 12% more expensive. This model is being built at Tesla's Shanghai plant and will also be exported to other markets in Asia, Europe and the Middle East. Meanwhile, in Europe, BMW and Mercedes are also making their biggest push into electric vehicles to catch up with Tesla and Chinese EV makers. For more on the global landscape of EV competition, our Zhao Yang spoke to Wang Den, chief economist of Hansen Bank China. So then first, uh, take a look at uh, Tesla's new Model 3. What is the features? And it is being built at Tesla's Shanghai plant and will also be exported to other markets in Asia, Europe and the Middle East. Why is this a strategy? Uh, many of Tesla's fans are very happy that Tesla finally has a new model. Uh, this new model's biggest feature is that it can drive longer. The standard version has a rated range of over 600 kilometers, and that is about 10% higher than the base model it replaces in China. Um, and when we look at the sales of Tesla, actually in the past 12 months, it has become less competitive to its Chinese counterparts. In 2021, the sales in Tesla increased by about 250 percent, but in 2022, it already decreased to 50 percent of growth. 
And one of the biggest reasons is that the product mix or the product variability is very limited comparing to other producers in China. And the European car makers, the BMW and Mercedes-Benz, they feel that uh, they are behind Tesla and some of the Chinese EV makers. They said they have to move quickly to be major players in the electric car era. So what do you think are their advantages and disadvantages in this field? Uh, The advantage is that those brands are really high-end. They always have placed quality over quantity. Uh, Mercedes and BMWs certainly have a big fan base in China. If people have moved to the middle class or the top wage earners in China, they would usually consider to buy a premium cars with either brands. So the premium segment of the market uh, has a large share still belonging to those two brands. Um, But when it comes to their competitiveness over time, we can see that market competition is not in their favor. The EV market in China is particularly competitive, broadly dominated by Tesla and different Chinese players. We can see that in terms of technology and in terms of customer services, they don't really hold a big edge anymore. The batteries are certainly the most important things for EVs, and Chinese car makers are gaining more momentum in their dominating position in technology and their product, uh, in their producing capacity. And for Chinese EV makers like BYD, it surpassed the Tesla as the world's largest EV maker last year, and its net income uh, jumped more than 400%. So what are some of the main reasons for this big jump in the profits of BYD, and what is uh, competitiveness? Uh, BYD represents uh, what we call the new China model for the car industry. Uh, Of course, when it started, there's a lot of the support from policies uh, in terms of subsidies, in terms of the land and power support from the local government. But over time, we notice that BYD is quite ambitious about how companies should be run in this industry. Uh, It is the most integrated car company in the world so that it is well shielded from the price volatility in the upstream resources and industrial inputs. And that's why we saw the kind of sales for BYD cars, be it the pure electric vehicles or the hybrids, the growth rate is usually above 200% year on year. And that is showing quite a big edge in its production and management capacity. Mm. And talking about the competition between BYD and Tesla or between the global EV makers and the traditional car makers, what impact will it have on the industry in terms of uh, competition? And what does it mean for consumers? Um, It's a very interesting scenario right now. Uh, For Tesla and BYD specifically, they have adopted completely different strategies from early on. And Tesla targeted the high-end market first and then moved to the mass market. But BYD uh, has been the complete opposite. It started from the mass market and then slowly edged into the high-end market. And now they look more and more similar in the kind of uh, services and technology uh, that they can offer to consumers. Um, And we saw that both car companies have engaged in this fierce price war early on this year. 
uh, it didn't really hurt either companies because they have great control over cost and production. But whoever's following them have suffered greatly since those emerging companies in the EV industry don't really have a great skill to contain their cost like what Tesla or BYD can do. And maybe we'll see more of those uh, third, uh, more of those EV makers in third and fourth place suffering a bigger loss rather than the top two. Mm-hmm. And the BMW CEO said recently that his company is going to double its EV sales this year, and by the end of the uh, 2023, 15% of the BMW's global sales will be battery EVs. So, do you think they will sell well on the Chinese market? Um, for ICE cars, the internal combustion engine vehicles, they certainly held a great advantage. So Chinese consumers do put high values on their brand. But when it comes to driving experience, I don't think their cars are actually there yet. Uh, when it comes to uh, the battery technology or the kind of assistant driving software, So maybe since they're starting from a low base, this year's growth will be relatively well. But for them to catch up in the market, it will take much longer. Mm -hmm. And how do you see other Chinese EV makers like Xiaopeng, like NIO? How do they compete with the global giants like Tesla and also the European traditional car makers like BMW for both the domestic and international market? Uh, Neo, Xiaopeng, and Otto Li are kind of still like babies in this industry. Um, they have emerged into different segments, especially targeting the Chinese consumers. For Neo, people usually consider it as a high-end, high-quality car, and the price is not low. So it's actually one of the most expensive EV in the market. And for Xiaopeng, more industrialized and more high-end in its technology. It also offers higher-end customer service, uh, more like the smart car kind of model. And for Autoly, uh, it focuses on family, so mm-hmm. bigger and uh, uh, family-friendlier. And this market has become so competitive, the profit margin is getting thinner and thinner. Mm-hmm. And currently, more electric vehicles have been sold in China than the rest of the world combined. Well, Chinese maker, you know, Chinese EV makers like BYD also top the nation sales and also export to international markets. So what are their main overseas markets? Um, Chinese EV makers mainly target uh, uh, the American market and also Europeans. Um, the biggest three export destinations are Mexico, Saudi Arabia, and Chile, each one of them accounting for about 7% of China's EV exports. And for European countries such as uh, Belgium, Spain, Germany, and France, um, they combine account for about 12% of China's EV exports. Uh, For investment pattern, there's also an interesting shift. Uh, In the beginning, we saw more of the final product or the EV delivery directly sold to those places. But now more and more companies choose to invest in the European or Latin American market and ship auto parts from China and assemble uh, at local market. They do this to avoid tariffs for the final car sales to those places. And I think this is going to be a bigger trend in the years to come. That's Wang Den, chief economist of Henson Bank China, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. 
You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Japan has told the World Trade Organization that China's ban on Japanese seafood is "quote unquote" totally unacceptable. China has suspended the imports of all aquatic products originating from Japan, including edible aquatic animals, to prevent risks from Japan's discharge of nuclear contaminated water. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says the move is fully legitimate, reasonable, and necessary. For more, we are now joined by Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. So, Professor Liu, China says the suspension of seafood imports is fully legitimate, reasonable, and necessary.、Uh, what is the legal basis for China's decision? China can cite two、uh, legal、uh, framework to support their argument.、Uh, one is the Uh, Chinese、uh, own foreign trade law uh, by uh, the seventeenth、uh, clause in the foreign trade law. It says very clearly,、uh, for the sake of national security and、uh, also for the、uh, preservation of people's life and、uh, health and also the、uh, environmental quality, the China has uh, a unilateral uh, uh, right to. Uh, ban certain imports, and、uh, the other is uh, the uh, get twenty、uh, two、uh, because uh, there is a general exception uh, in the uh, WTO get uh, where uh, again uh, when people's life and the animals' life are、uh, being endangered, and also when environment uh, is uh, facing imminent danger. In the、uh, importation of certain products, and that can also be legitimately be banned. So、uh, China really relies on、uh, also a number of、uh, other international treaties in which both China and Japan are the member of to、uh, to them. So、uh, that's why there is full ground for China to claim legitimacy to preemptively take actions against the、uh, possible. Damage to people's health and also to the、uh, Chinese environment. Uh, the uh, so this is really、uh, something that uh, uh, we can really earn legitimacy.、Hmm. Okay, but、um, the problem is Japan insists that the water is safe, and the IAEA report suggests it's a negligible radiological impact. But why does China believe the IAEA report is not persuasive enough to greenlight Japan's disposal? Well,、uh, IEA uh, is there uh, not really to engage in the、uh, full responsibility in、uh, doing the、uh, review and also dealing with the monitor work. It's more or less an endorsement of uh, uh, whatever is being produced from the Japanese side themselves. So that's why、uh, there has been a reasonable level of distrust, not only.、Uh, From China, but also from、uh, many other countries, and so therefore,、uh, this type of endorsement is not highly convincing to both the government and also the end consumers. And、uh, the problem is also that、uh, the such sort of discharge can really last for decades to come. So that's the、uh, lingering worry uh, over 
the, the house conditions and even environmental damage to certain countries of importation. And so the, uh, the, the further damage can uh, be ruled out uh, along the line uh, with time. So this is really a more serious issue that uh, countries are really guarding against. Mm-hmm. Well, some Japanese officials have signaled that the country may file a WTO complaint. So what are the potential implications of pursuing such a complaint? And how might the WTO handle uh, disputes like this that may involve environmental risks and safety considerations? WTO is a trading organization. And so therefore, they look at more unfair trade and uh, the uh, particularly guard against the discriminative practices. Uh, although they have the uh, general exception clause within the uh, GATT agreement, they are very cautious in uh, relying on this uh, uh, exception. So therefore, uh, Japan might, uh, might be thinking that they stand a chance that simply by uh, the uh, proposing a fair trade issue where China is do- really uh, the overreact- overreacting towards such an issue given the endorsement of the IEA. Uh, however, that's going to be a long fight. And uh, uh, first, there is they have not really exhausted the diplomatic roles in uh, solving the problem. And even if they refer to uh, WTO again. WTO was uh, uh, with that platform will uh, form uh, conciliation measures uh, through consultation and probably with some mediation. And right now, uh, you know, even if the uh, consultation fails, the appellate court uh, uh, is theoretically to take over. But the appellate court is now in a in a sort of state of impasse. So. Uh, I do not think there is much of the result. It's more, more or less a sort of uh, the moral cry, and to uh, trying to say the uh, denounce the Chinese uni, uh, unilateral action. But I do not see much of the chance that a WTO is able to solve this issue, at least in the near uh, three years to come. Mm-hmm. But very quickly, uh, do you think seafood industry in Japan is bound to bear heavy losses even without such an import ban from China because market se- itself will make choices based on consumer preferences? Yeah, you just hit on the point. As a matter of fact, that uh, China, mainland and Hong Kong combined, they normally take more than 40% of the entire export uh, market for uh, Japan. And now, you know, uh, the Chinese people are uh, very much uh, uh, the vigilance against the possible contamination. And uh, there is uh, quite a panic. So therefore, even if without the government action, without the customs, uh, the ban on this, the Chinese consumers will boycott against them. Of course, there are some uh, the nationalistic sentiments that is involved due to the uh, bilateral mm-hmm. histories. Uh, this is really a, re- uh, a realistic and also a rational reaction. Yes. Thank you, Professor Liu Baochun, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at the University of International Business and Economics. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.